how many of you, I want you to just think about this for a second, are, are familiar with the idea of, of muscle memory, if, if you've heard that term before. It's the idea of if you repeat something enough over and over, you repeat a specific task, over time you eventually begin to perform it uh, with little to no conscious effort because you're so used to doing it. You've done it so many times. We do all sorts of things like this, uh, maybe brushing your teeth. Uh, you know when you're doing it because you're doing something, but your mind's somewhere else and you don't even have to think about it. Uh, maybe tying your shoe. You tie your shoe without even thinking about it. You've done it so many times. Uh, when I think of, uh, about this idea of just muscle memory, I often think of sports, doing repeated movements over and over that help you. And so growing up, uh, I was always, basketball was my first love and my first sport. We played basketball a lot. And so you learn to shoot a basketball really uh, from a young age. You know, your hands are together, your, your elbow is supposed to be in an L, straight, follow through. The less uh, movement you have in your arm, the better you're going to be at it because you're going to be more consistent. But what happens oftentimes playing basketball, especially growing up, you start when you're a small child like I did. I started when I was maybe in kindergarten. You develop all sorts of bad habits because you're not strong enough. And so you shoot from down low, and then as you get older, it gets a little higher, and a lot of times your elbow's out here. And so over time, you get bigger and stronger, and you have coaches, and they correct those little things, right? Like tuck your elbow in and bring the ball up, and you get it up higher. And finally, as you mature and you get older and stronger, then you start to kind of do it the right way. And then repetition over time, that becomes muscle memory, and you can eventually be a good shooter by doing that. And I start there and I say that because in a lot of ways our spiritual walk is the same way. We become a believer and we come to faith and we put our faith in Jesus and what he's done for us. And God gives us the Holy Spirit powerfully and fully in our life and he's teaching us and correcting us and walking with us. But we're still learning. We're being transformed by the renewal of our minds as it says in Romans 12. And we're bringing thoughts captive and we're bringing those things under the truth of who God is. And we're repeating those things and rehearsing those things. We come together and we worship and we sing songs and we do these things and we read scripture. And we continue to do them and it's bringing our practice into, into a closer picture of who God is. And so we do that over time. And so what we were talking about last week, if you were with us, in Romans chapter 8, we were looking at this idea of walking uh, in the spirit or setting our minds on the things of the spirit versus setting our minds on the things of the flesh or, or walking in the flesh. And, and we could summarize that just real simply. Walking in the flesh is, is the idea that we're ignoring God and the world he created. Or if we use the language of Romans, as we've been in Romans for months now, if we were to go back to Romans chapter 1, it says uh, they worship the creation rather than the creator. And so we look for meaning and purpose in our life and created things rather than the creator. And that's what it means to walk in our flesh. We're making about us and the created order rather than about God and who he is. And so conversely, uh, setting our minds on the spirit or walking in the spirit is seeing all things uh, through who God is and who we are in light of him. And worshiping the creator rather than the creation. And so Paul's telling us to set our minds on the flesh will lead to death and all sorts of issues. To set your mind on the spirit is life. And peace. And so what I want us to think about, all that coming together this morning, is we think about kind of that idea of muscle memory. There's three things that we're going to look at here in this passage from verses 14 to 27 of Romans chapter 8. That I think if we keep them in the forefront of our minds and we're, we're believing this and we're coming back to these truths about what it says, it helps us to walk more fully in the Spirit. If we continue to integrate those into our life. And so the way I want us to look at these verses is just to ask these Three, these two questions and then one kind of point at the end. 
But the first question is just, what does this say about who God is and how we approach him? Who he is and how we approach him. This is really important to understanding how we continue to walk in the spirit or setting our minds on the things of the spirit. So who is God and how do we approach him? And then secondly, what is he doing? How is he at work? Right? So who is God and how do we approach him? And then what he's doing or how he's at work. And then lastly, when we see those two things and we put them together, it gives us a proper perspective that helps us to continue to walk in the spirit. And so let's just start with who he is and how do we approach him and what Paul tells us that's so important here in Romans chapter 8. So look at verse 14. He says, all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so looking right there at verse 14, he says, all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. And this is so important. If we're walking by the Spirit and we're understanding this truth and we're holding fast to that, we're setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, we see that God is our Father, that we are children of God. Right? It says sons there, but we would be just as correct to say daughters or children, that we are children of God because of what Jesus has done for us. And so in Jesus, he saves us by grace through faith. He removes our sin. He takes it upon himself. And he restores us to this relationship with God. And we are now called children of God in Christ. And so he calls us into this. And he tells us that we are part of God's family as his children. And this is such an important thing to think about when we think about setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. Because it says real clearly there in verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And so Paul's pointing us to that. But it's not something that just Paul says. It's all throughout Scripture. Jesus tells us this. In fact, Jesus teaches us to pray this way. If we would go to Matthew chapter 6 or Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 in particular, the disciples come in and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And he teaches them what we call the Lord's Prayer. One of the most familiar passages in the Bible. Jesus teaches them to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so he teaches us, Jesus, who is God in the flesh... Second person of the Trinity, when we see Jesus, we see exactly what God is like. And he says, this is the way you approach God the Father. You call him Father. You come to him that way. And when Jesus said that, when he taught that, uh, to come to God in such familiar and intimate terms, that would have been very radical for people to hear, for his disciples to hear. For him to say, you go to God like this, you call him Father. But that's how Jesus teaches us to pray. To come with this intimate terms as, as God as our Father. But then I want you to look here what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 8. In verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so what Paul says is, is what Jesus tells us. Jesus says you come to God and you say, Father, our Father, and you speak to him this way. And here he says, when the Spirit comes in, you put your faith in Jesus and you now have the Holy Spirit in full. He says, the Spirit comes in and the Spirit of adoptions and sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so the Holy Spirit calls us to call God the Father, our Father. But not only Father, he says, Abba, 
Father. And, and that term that he uses there, Abba, is, is best um, translated just as dad or, or daddy. Like, like what a little child says to their father. It says dada or daddy. I remember when the boys were real little and you, you'd come home and they hadn't seen you all day. And you walk around the corner and they say, daddy! Right? Like they yell it out like they're excited that they see you there. And that's what he's saying to us. That's the way the Spirit comes in and cries out to the Father, Daddy, Abba, Father. And so he tells us that we relate to God in this way. But there's an important thing that he says here for us just to pause and consider for a second. In verse 15 there he says, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. And there's this language of adoption. That we're adopted in. We're adopted into God's family. And so it, it's right to say that God is the Father of all. All people on the planet. Because he is the creator of all. He's created all people. All people are made in his image. But yet the Bible tells us in our sin. In our rebellion against God. We have estranged ourselves from God. We have turned our backs on him. And our sin has broken that relationship with him. And so like if you read in Ephesians 2 or, or Titus 3, it talks about how we are now by nature children of wrath apart from Jesus. Our sin has separated us from God and God's holy righteous anger rests on us apart from what Jesus has done for us. And that's because we have rebelled against God and the world he created. All sin is against God. God is perfectly holy and righteous in every way. And so there is a break there. But God is gracious and loving and merciful. And so he sends Jesus to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. And in doing so, he takes our sin upon himself. And he bears the wrath of God on our behalf. And he saves all those that would put their faith in him. And in doing so, we're adopted back into God's family. We're, we're children of God adopted back in. And so the Bible uses that language. We can go to the, the story of the prodigal son. It tells this very clearly. right? Jesus tells a story uh, of what God is like. And if you know the story of the prodigal son, it's, it's a, uh, a son who goes to his father and he says, I want my inheritance now. Which really is a way of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want you to go ahead and give me what I'm going to get when you die. And he says, I would like it now. And so he gives it to him. And he leaves and he goes off. And he uh, turns his back on his father. And he's estranged from his father. And he goes and he spends all the money on reckless living. And he comes to the end of his rope. And he kind of hits rock bottom. And he goes back to his father's house. Right? In the story of the prodigal son. And Jesus tells the story that when he returns, the father sees him coming off. And he jumps up and he runs out to meet his son. He brings him back in. And Jesus tells us that's what God is like. And what he's done for us in Jesus. But in those moments when we turn our back on him, we are estranged from him and his sin, our sin and rebellion and God's wrath rests on us. But he adopts us back in through what Jesus has done. And as he does, though, we get brought back into this relationship. And now we have this perfect relationship with God because he's what he's done. And he is our father. And so Paul's telling us that as the spirit comes in and cries out, Abba, Father, that we have this relationship, this perfect relationship now with God because of what Jesus has done. And so I want you just to think about what that looks like. When we say, who is God and how do we approach him? He is this perfect father that we call father. But I want us to think about what that looks like. You know, right now in our church, it's been a, a cool season, even the last couple of years. A lot of babies, 
A lot of babies in our church, and it's awesome. Uh, some have just had their very first. Uh, there's a couple right now that are about to have number two or three, and a couple that have just had number three, and all in between. And so a lot of new babies uh, in, as part of our body. And I was thinking about that this week and the difference between uh, baby number one and, say, baby number three. Uh, baby number one, when Asher was first born, uh, I remember a couple months of not sleeping at all, pretty much. It just seemed like one big long day for like a couple months. And it was like every single noise he made, every cry, everything, it was like, is that normal? Is that right? Is that okay? Is he did, what's he crying about now? And I remember him being in our room and waking up at every single little noise. We had him at the end by the bed on this little crib thing. And it was miserable. Because <laughs> it was like, you're so exhausted and you're so tired. And then he'd finally go to sleep and he'd be sound asleep. And then you would go, is he okay? I don't think he's breathing. I'm not sure he's alive. And you'd go over and you'd look at him. And it was so intense. And it's so intense because, to be honest, you don't know what you're doing. You just had this baby. Nobody really told you how to do it, and now you have this child, and you love them so much, and you're so wrapped up, and I, I want to do everything right, and it's hard. But then I remember, uh, then we had Jed, number two, and then a couple years later, Quinn comes along, number three. By the time number three came along, when Quinn was born, it was like, you put in earplugs, and you go to bed, and you're like, if I hear them over my earplugs, then maybe something's wrong, and I'll go check on them. And it's partly just because you now understand what it's like. And you've had experience and you've been walking through it. And so what happens with number three, uh, I remember this vividly with, with Quinn. It's like you get to a point where you know uh, he's crying right now and he's crying because he's tired. That's the tired cry. Or he's crying now because he's hungry. Or he's crying because you told him no. Or he's crying, you, you understand and you hear those cries because you've been doing this for years and you kind of have the experience of it now. And I remember going through the difference between one to three. But, but I say all that to say this, that God tells us that he is our father, our perfect father, and that he hears our cries, and he knows every single one of them in every way and what's going on. He is the perfect father. He didn't have to go through the, the growth of not understanding what, the, what it was like with the first one. He knows perfectly every cry of your heart. And as a perfect father, he's attentive, and he's paying attention, and he hears it, and he knows what you need. And so this beautiful picture of, of what it looks like to approach God as a father who knows every one of your needs. And he knows everything about you, and he knows every cry of your heart. But then look at what Paul says here in verse 26 to 28. He says something just remarkable. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us. In our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so do you hear what he says? He says, when you pray, and when you're crying out to God, and we're struggling, and things are hard, and we cry out to God, and he knows our cries, and he knows every part of it. But not only that, you now have the fullness of God with you, in a person. The Holy Spirit is with you, and he never leaves you, and he never forsakes you, and he's with you at every moment. And when you cry out, and you're not even sure what to cry out for, the Spirit intercedes for you. And he's praying for you. And so I was thinking about what that looks like in our life. A lot of times we're dealing with things, and on the surface we just go, I want this to be better. 
God, would you fix this? And so we pray. We pray from our hearts. And we cry out to Him. And we pray about things that are going on in our life. I, I remember at different times, the, the boys getting older now, trying out for like sports teams. And praying, God, let them make the team. Right? I, I, want, them to, I want my kids best. And, and you know they want to be on the team. And you know that they want to make it. And so you go, God, just... Can they make the team? And sometimes they make the team and sometimes they don't. And I think what happens, if if you were to look at the deepest heart's desire for my children, is that they would grow to love and know God above all else. And that they would be humble and they would have a servant's heart. I pray this with my kids all the time, that we would show people what Jesus is like by the way we treat them. And so when I'm praying that they make the team, that's really the deepest prayer. And I think what happens sometimes is you're praying, God, let them make the team. And the Holy Spirit intercedes and goes, oh, not this year. And that's happened. I've seen that happen with my children. I saw that happen with Jed last year. He was the last person cut from the basketball team. And he came home and was like, oh, I just but coach said I can be manager. And I was like, do you want to do that? Yeah, I want to do that. That'd be great. And God taught him humility. And he gave him a stronger work ethic. And he continued to shape and mold him. And then he made the team this year. And you can see how God was working in all of that. And so sometimes we pray, God, let him make the team. And the Holy Spirit intercedes and goes, I'm not yet. I've got some other things that I'm working here. And so, so the point is this, and this is so very important. The Holy Spirit intercedes and prays the deepest need, the deepest needs of our heart, even when we're not sure what they are. He prays the thing that you would pray if you knew everything God knew. God is your perfect Father, knows everything you need. He knows every cry of your heart and what's behind it and what you need most, and the Holy Spirit intercedes for you. I don't know about you, but that is such good news to me. That God is interceding in all the ways that I pray messed up. He goes, I'm not exactly like that. That he loves us so much that he intercedes and he comes and he says, no, this is, this is what they really need. And God intercedes and loves us in that way. And so when you see that, that you can approach God as this perfect father that knows all of your cries and all your needs and he's interceding and praying for you. What a glorious truth that is that helps us to set our mind on the spirit. That God loves us so much that he's at work in those ways. But then the second thing I want you to consider here is what he's doing in all that. Yes, he intercedes and he's praying for us and he's taking those things. But then look at what he says here in verses 18 to 25. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves... Who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, and now hope is 
that the seen is not hope for who hopes for what is seen. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so look at what he's saying here. He's saying there's a lot of things in the world that are a struggle right now. And there's futility and there's problems and there's issues. And we're eagerly awaiting for those things to be removed to see the fullness of it. But there's a really important verse here. I've wrestled with this verse for years and it's in verse 20. He says the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope. And so the question becomes in verse 20 is who is the him that has subjected creation to futility? And the answer is when he says in hope at the end of verse 20, it's God himself that has subjected the creation to futility. That he's allowed the creation to feel the consequences of our rebellion, of our sin. And we see it around us. We see the struggles in life. We see the struggles all around us and the things that are happening. And so the question becomes, why would God allow futility on a global scale that we feel the weight? We feel the groaning of creation. What is he doing? How is he doing that in hope? It says he subjected the creation to futility, not willingly, but he subjected it in hope for a good reason. And the answer is God is allowing us to feel the weight of sin because he is at work for our redemption and the redemption of all creation. Redemption, being redeemed, our greatest need is that we see that we need God. And so God, in his grace, allows us, when we turn our back on him, to feel the consequences of that. To feel the futility of that. To feel the struggle of it. It is precisely because he loves us that he allows us to feel those things. That he allows the creation to groan under the weight of sin. And so God uses that. To strip us of our self-reliance. So make this connection. So walking by the flesh is saying, worshiping the creation and myself, and I'm the center of the world, and I can do all of it, and it's all about me. And Paul's already said, that's death. You don't want that. Set your mind on the spirit, and it's life and peace. And so God allows you to feel the weight of the sin of the world when you walk by the flesh, precisely because he loves you. Precisely because he's stripping you of your self-reliance to point you to your greater need for him. And so what we have is a, is a perfect father that hears every one of our cries, that is using it for our good, in his glory, and he's teaching and showing us through that. So why Paul can say in chapter 5, we looked at this a, a little while back, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 2, he says, Through him... We have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have been saved by what Jesus has done, and we rejoice in the hope that we have because of what he's done for us in Jesus. But then he says this in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so he says we rejoice in the hope that we have. The confident assurance of what is to come because of what Jesus has done for us. But not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Because God is teaching and shaping and walking with us in all those things to show us more fully how we desperately need him in all things. As a perfect father does. And so when we say who is he 
And how do we approach him? God is accessible. He is there for us. He is the perfect father who hears our cries, who intercedes for us. But he's also the God who is in control of all things. And he's using every bit of it for your good and for his glory. And so here's the last thing when you put those two together. It's what Paul says in verse 18. Our perspective changes when we see God as this perfect father that's working in all these ways, who's in control of all things for our good. Verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says, when you understand that God is a perfect father, who you can come to with all things, who hears your cries, that knows everything you need, that is at work, that is interceding for you, who is using all things together to shape you and mold you, to turn you back to him more fully. He says, everything that you go through in your life, you can trust that God is using for his glory. And it's not worth comparing with what's to come. That we know the ends. That he's going to use every bit of it to bring us to the fullness of what he created us to be. And it's all because of what Jesus has done for us. And so Paul says almost the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4. And I love this passage. It's one of my favorites. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16. He says, so we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. I felt that my knees are falling apart. My outer self is wasting away. I stand up and they creak and pop and they hurt. And I'm like, ugh. But then he says, but your inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What he's saying is we, we now have an eternal perspective. We understand who God is and what he's doing and the way he relates to us and the way he's in control of all things. It changes our perspective. We can rejoice in our sufferings. We can, in the weight and the groaning and the futility of this creation, God is using this. I don't say that lightly. Paul says these light momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Let me just remind you when Paul says that. This is someone that was beaten within inches of his life multiple times who was shipwrecked, who was thrown in jail, who was snake-bitten, all of these things. And he goes, light momentary afflictions compared to what's coming. And so when we understand who God is and how we relate to him and how he is in control of all things, it leads us to have this viewpoint that God is in control and he is using all of it for our good and his glory. And that's what it looks like to walk by the Spirit versus the flesh. Setting our mind on him and what he's doing rather than on us and our struggle. And so I want to end with this, just as you think about this. That was a good uh, way to think about the difference between walking by the flesh and, and by the spirit. And I heard Tim Keller tell this years ago in a sermon. He said, imagine two people have the exact same job. They work for the same place and the boss separates them out and he tells them, uh, he, he brings the two employees in and he says, this year is going to be really difficult and I need you to work six days a week, 12-hour days, no vacations. It's going to be menial tasks and really hard physically. It's going to be difficult and this is what this year is going to look like. And he says, so you're going to go over there and get to work and you're going to go over there and get to work. And so he goes into the first room with the one and he says, oh, and by the way, at the end of the year, you're going to get paid $15,000 total. At the end of the year for everything you do, that's the end of it. 
And then he leaves and he walks into the other room and he goes to the other person and he says, oh, by the way, you're going to get a $100 million bonus at the end of the year. How would those two experience that year differently? When we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, a God who is perfectly in tune with who you are, that is your Father that you can bring all things to, that's using all things together for your good. It's like the person who just got told at the end it's $100 million, so it's going to all be perfect, that we're going to get this glory at the end that's beyond all comparison. And so setting our minds on the Spirit is life and peace, that God is at work in all things. So pray with me. God, we pray that we would be people that see you at work in all things. That trust that you are the perfect Father that hears us, that knows our cries, that meets us in the middle of it. We thank you that you are. We thank you that you've proven that in Jesus and what you've come to do for us, that you love us so much, that you willingly laid your life down for us. I pray for each one of us here this week as we go out into the things that we're facing and the opportunity comes to walk by our flesh, that we would set our minds on the things of the Spirit, that we would bring all things to you, that we'd be trusting you, that you love us, that you have us in all things and all ways. We thank you that this is true. We pray that you continue to expand our faith and our understanding of who you are and the ways you love us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.